Section 9 of Anton Chekhov and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anton Chekhov and Other Essays by Lev Shestov. Translated by John Middleton Murray and Samuel Kataliansky. Penultimate Words, Part 4 what is truth etc nine what is truth the skeptics assert that truth does not and cannot exist and the assertion has eaten so deep into the modern mind that the only philosophy which has spread in our day is that of kant which takes skepticism for its point of departure but read the preface to the first edition of the critique of pure reason attentively and you will be convinced that he had absolutely no concern with the question what is truth he only set himself to solve the problem what should a man do who has been convinced of the impossibility of finding the objective truth the old metaphysic with its arbitrary and unproven assertions which could not bear criticism irritated kant and he decided to get rid even though by accepting the relative legitimacy of skepticism of the unscientific discipline which he as a teacher of philosophy had to represent but the confidence of the skeptics and kant's deference are not in the least binding upon us and after all kant himself did not fulfil the obligations which he undertook for if we do not know what is truth what value have the postulates of the existence of god and the immortality of the soul how can we justify or explain any one of the existing religions christianity included although the gospel does not at all agree with our scientific notions of the laws of nature yet it does not in itself contain anything contrary to reason we do not disbelieve in miracles because they are impossible on the contrary it is as clear as day to the most ordinary common sense that life itself the foundation of the world is the miracle of miracles and if the task of philosophy had reduced to the mere demonstration of the possibility of a miracle her business would have been splendidly accomplished long ago the whole trouble is that visible miracles are not enough for people and that it is impossible to deduce from the fact that many miracles have already taken place that other miracles without which mere existence is often impossible will also happen in due course men are being born without doubt a great miracle there exists a beautiful world also a miracle of miracles but does it follow that men will rise from the grave and that paradise is made ready for them the raising of lazarus is not much believed nowadays even by those who revere the gospel not because they will not admit the possibility of miracles in general but because they cannot decide a priori which miracles are possible and which are not and therefore they are obliged to judge a posteriori they readily accept a miracle that has happened but they doubt the miracle that has not happened 
and the more they doubt the more passionately do they desire it it costs nothing to believe in the final triumph of good upon the earth though it would be an absolute miracle in progress or the infallibility of the pope these two are miracles and by no means inconsiderable for after all men are quite sufficiently indifferent to good to progress and to the virtues of the pope it is much harder nay quite impossible standing before the dead body of one who is near and dear to believe that an angel will fly down from heaven and bring the dead to life again although the world is full of happenings no less miraculous than the raising of the dead therefore the sceptics are wrong when they assert that there is no truth truth exists but we do not know it in all its volume nor can we formulate that which we do know we cannot imagine why it happened thus and not otherwise or whether that which happened had to happen thus or whether something else quite different might have happened once it was held that reality obeys the laws of necessity but hume explained that the notion of necessity is subjective and therefore must be discarded as illusory his idea was caught up without the deduction by kant all those of our judgments which have the character of universality and necessity acquire it only by virtue of our psychological organization in those cases where we are particularly convinced in the objective value of our judgment we have merely to do with the purely subjective certainty though it is immutable and secure in the visible world it is well known that kant did not accept hume's deduction not only did he make no attempt to banish the false premises from our intellectual economy as hume did with the conception of necessity but on the contrary he declared that such an attempt was quite impracticable the practical reason suggested to kant that though the foundations of our judgments are vitiated by their sources yet their invariability may be of great assistance in the world of phenomena that is in the space between the birth and death of man if a man has lived before birth as plato held and will live after death then his truths were not and will not be necessary there in the other world what truths are there and whether there are any truths at all kant only guesses and he succeeds in his guesses only because of his readiness to ignore logic in his conclusions he suddenly gives faith an immense right to judge of the real world a right of which faith would never dream had it not been taken under his special patronage by the philosopher himself but why can faith do that which reason cannot and a yet more insidious question are not all postulates invented by the same mind which was deprived of its rights from the first critique but which subsequently obtained a verdict of restitutio in integrum by changing the name of the firm the last hypothesis is the most probable and if so then does it not follow that in the real world so carefully divided by kant from the world of phenomena we will find much that is new but not a little that is old 
in general it is clear that the assumption that our world is a world of an instant a brief dream utterly unlike real life is mistaken this assumption first enunciated by plato and afterwards celebrated and maintained by many representatives of religious and philosophical thought is based upon no data at all there's no denying it is very pleasant but as often happens as soon as the wish was invested with language by the mere fact it received too sharp and angular an expression so that it lost all resemblance to itself the essence of the true primordial life beyond the grave appears to plato as absolute good refined from an alloy as the essence of virtue but after all plato himself cannot suffer the absolute emptiness of the ideal existence and constantly flavors it with elements which are by no means ideal but which give interest and intensity to his dialogues if you have never had the occasion to read plato himself acquaint yourself with his philosophy through the teachings of any of his admirers and appreciators and you will be struck by its emptiness read the thick volume of nottorp's well-known work and you will see what value there is in plato's putrefied doctrine and in passing i would recommend as a general rule this method of examining the ideas of famous philosophers by acquainting oneself with them not only in the original work but in the expositions of their disciples particularly of faithful and conscientious disciples when the fascination of the personality and the genius disappears and the naked unadorned truth remains disciples always believe that the master had the truth and they reveal it without any embellishment or fig leaf only then does it become quite clear of how little value are the fundamental thoughts of even the most exalted philosophers still more obvious does it become when the faithful disciple begins to draw conclusions from his master's proportions the book of the aforesaid natorp a great plato expert is a reductio ad absurdum of all his master's ideas plato is revealed as a logical neo-kantian a narrow-minded savant who had been put through the mill at freiburg or heidelberg it is also revealed that plato's ideas in the pure state do not in the least express his attitude to life and to the world one must take the whole plato with his contradictions and inconsequence with his vices and virtues and value his defects at least as much as his qualities or even add one or two defects and be blind to one or two of his virtues for it is probable that he as a man to whom nothing human was alien tried to assume a few virtues which he did not possess and to conceal a few failings this course should be followed with other masters of wisdom and their doctrines then the other world will not appear to be separated by such an abyss from our earthly veil and perhaps in spite of kant some empirical truths will be found common to both worlds then pilate's question will lose much of its all-conquering certainty he wished to wash his hands of the business and he asked what is truth 
after him and before him many who had no desire to struggle had devised ingenious questions and taken their stand upon scepticism but every one knows that truth does exist and sometimes can even formulate its own conception with the clarity and precision demanded by descartes is the miraculous bounded by the miracles that have already been seen on earth or are its limits set much wider and if wider then how much ten more of truth perhaps truth is by nature such that its communication between men is impossible at least the usual communication by means of language everyone may know it in himself but in order to enter into communication with his neighbor he must renounce the truth and accept some conventional lie nevertheless the value and importance of truth is by no means lessened by the fact that it cannot be given a market valuation if you were asked what is truth you could not answer the question even though you had given your whole life to the study of philosophical theories in yourself if you have no one to answer you know well what the truth is therefore truth does not by nature resemble empirical truth in the least and before entering the world of philosophy you must bid farewell to scientific methods of search and to the accustomed methods of estimating knowledge in a word you must be ready to accept something absolutely new quite unlike what is traditional and old that is why the tendency to discredit scientific knowledge is by no means so useless as may at first sight appear to the experienced eye that is why irony and sarcasm prove to be a necessary weapon of the investigator the most dangerous enemy of new knowledge always has been and always will be inculcated habit from the practical point of view it is much more important to a man to know the things which may help him to adapt himself to the temporary conditions of his existence than those which have a timeless value the instinct of self-preservation always proves stronger than the sincerest desire for knowledge moreover one must remember that the instinct has at its disposal innumerable and most subtle weapons of defence that all human faculties without exception are under its command from unconscious reflexes up to the enthroned mind and august consciousness much and often has been said in this regard and for once the consensus sapientium is on my side true this is treated as an undeniable perversion of human nature and here i make my protest i think that there is in this nothing undesirable our mind and consciousness must consider it an honor that they can find themselves in the service of instinct even if it be the instinct of self-preservation they should not be conceited and to tell the truth they are not conceited but readily fulfill their official mission they pretend to priority only in books and tremble at the thought of preeminence in life if by some accident they were allowed freedom of action they would go mad with terror like children lost in a forest at night 
every time that the mind and consciousness begin to judge independently they reach destructive conclusions and then they see with surprise that this time too they were not acting freely but under the dictation of the self-same instinct which had assumed a different character the human soul desired the work of destruction and she loosed the slaves from their chains and they in wild enthusiasm began to celebrate their freedom by making great havoc not at the least suspecting that they remained just as they were before slaves who work for others long ago dostoevsky pointed out that the instinct of destruction is as natural to the human soul as that of creation beside these two instincts all our faculties appear to be minor psychological properties required only under given and accidental conditions of truth as not only the crass materialists now confess but the idealists also have found in their metaphysic nothing remains but the idea of the norm to speak in more expressive and intelligible language truth exists only in order that men who are separated in time and space might establish between themselves some kind of communication at least that is a man must choose between absolute loneliness with truth on the one side and communion with his neighbors and falsehood on the other which is better it will be asked the question is idle i reply there is a third way still to accept both though it may at first appear utterly absurd especially to people who have once for all decided that logic like mathematics is infallible whereas it is possible and not merely possible we would not be content with the possibility only a german idealist can be satisfied with the good which was never realized in any place at all it is continually observed that the most contradictory spiritual states do coexist all men lie when they begin to speak our language is so imperfectly arranged that the principle of its arrangement presupposes a readiness to speak untruth the more abstract the subject is the more does the disposition to lie increase until when we touch upon the most complicated questions we have to lie incessantly and the lie is the more intolerable and coarse the more sincere we are for a sincere man is convinced that veracity is assured by the absence of contradictions and in order to avoid all appearance of lie he tries to make a logical agreement between his opinions that is to raise his lie to herculean heights in his turn when he receives the opinion of others he applies the same criterion and the moment he notices the smallest contradiction he begins naively to cry out against the violation of the fundamental decencies what is particularly curious is that all the learned students of philosophy and it is strictly to them that i address myself here as the reader has probably observed long ago certainly are well aware that no single one of the mightiest philosophers has hitherto succeeded in eliminating all contradictions from his system how well armed was spinoza 
he spared no effort and stuck at nothing and yet his remarkable system will not bear logical criticism that is a matter of common knowledge so it appears that we ought to ask what the devil is the use of consistency and whether contradictions are not the condition of truthfulness in one's conception of the world and after kant his disciples and successors might have answered quietly that the devil alone knows the use of consistency and that truth lives by contradictions as a matter of fact hegel and schopenhauer each in his own way partly attempted to make an admission of this kind but they derived small profit from it let us try to draw some conclusions from the foregoing certainly while logic can be useful it would be unjustifiable recklessness to refuse its services nor are the conclusions devoid of interest as we shall see first of all when you speak never trouble to be consistent with what you said before that will put an unnecessary check upon your freedom which without that additional fetter is always chained in words and grammatical forms when you are listening to a friend or reading a book do not assign great value to individual words or even to phrases forget separate thoughts and give no great consideration even to logically arranged ideas remember that though your friend desires it he cannot express himself save by ready-made forms of speech look well to the expressions of his face listen to the intonation of his voice this will help you to penetrate through his words to his soul not only in conversation but even in a written book can one overhear the sound even the timbre of the author's voice and notice the finest shades of expression in his eyes and face do not fasten upon contradictions do not dispute do not demand argument only listen with attention in return for which when you begin to speak you also will have to face no dispute nor to produce arguments which you know well you neither have nor could have so you will not be annoyed by having pointed out to you your contradictions which you know well were always there and will always be there and with which it is painful nay quite impossible for you to part then then and this is most important of all you will at last be convinced that truth does not depend on logic that there are no logical truths at all that you therefore have the right to search for what you like how you like without argument and that if something results from your search it will not be a formula not a law not a principle not even an idea only think while the object of search is truth as it is understood nowadays one must be prepared for anything for instance the materialists will be right and matter and energy are the basis of the world it does not matter that we can immediately confound the materialists with their conclusions the history of thought can show many cases of the complete rehabilitation of opinions that have been cast off and reviled yesterday's air may be tomorrow's truth even a self-evident truth and apart from its content wherein is materialism bad 
it is a harmonious consistent and well-sustained system i have already pointed out that the materialist conception of the world is just as capable of enchanting men as any other pantheistic or idealistic and since we have come so far i confess that in my opinion no ideas at all are bad in themselves so far as i have been able to follow with pleasure the development of the idea of progress to the accompaniment of factories railways and aeroplanes still it seems to me childish to hope that all these trivialities i mean the ideas will become the object of man's serious seeking if that desperate struggle of man with god and the world were possible of which legend and history tell think of prometheus alone then it was not for truth and not for the idea man desires to be strong and rich and free the wretched insignificant creature of dust whom the first chance shock crushes like a worm before one's eyes and if he speaks of ideas it is only because he despairs of success in his proper search he feels that he is a worm he fears that he must again return to the dust which he is and he lies pretending that his misery is not terrible to him if only he knew the truth forgive him his lie for he speaks it only with his lips let him say what he will how he will so long as we hear in his words the familiar note of the call to battle and the fire of desperate inexorable resolution burns in his eyes we will understand him we are used to decipher hieroglyphics but if he like the germans of to-day accepts truth and the norm as the final goal of human aspiration we shall also know with whom we have to deal were he by destiny endowed with the eloquence of cicero better utter loneliness than communion with such a man yet such communion does not exclude utter loneliness perhaps it even assists the hard achievement end of section nine